Hello, I'm Helen McCabe from the University of Nottingham. Welcome to the Forced Marriage Research Podcast, where we explore concepts, contexts, and contemporary challenges. Welcome, and thanks for joining us for episode three of the Forced Marriage Research Podcast. This podcast is centred on work funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council, investigating the connection between forced marriage and modern slavery. Two previous episodes have looked at one strand of this research, the way forced marriage and modern slavery are linked in the law. This month, we're going to look at the philosophical strand, which is my main strand on the project, and I'm delighted to introduce you to Professor Zoe Trodd, Director of the Rights Lab, who's kindly agreed to interview me for this episode. Thank you, Helen. Hello, everyone. And thanks, Helen, for inviting me to host. It's really wonderful, I think, that we're flipping the script and we get to actually hear from you as the expert in this podcast episode. I direct the Rights Lab. We do have, um, as Helen knows, a whole program on forced marriage that Helen leads. And it really was Helen who is responsible for our focus on forced marriage. We understand it to sit within that broad umbrella of modern slavery, along with forced labour and human trafficking. So Helen, I know you started looking at the analysis of marriage as a form of slavery by some really specific historical philosophers. So can we just start out by asking who were they? Sure. So firstly, uh, John Stuart Mill, uh, because his analysis in um, a book called The Subjection of Women is probably the most famous example of analysing contemporary marriage as a form of slavery or something similar to slavery, but also because most of my research before I joined the Rights Lab has been focused on his work. So it seemed a natural place for me to start and kind of segue my research into a new area. And then I'm also really interested in the analysis used by his co-author and the woman he eventually married, Harriet Taylor, uh, not least because she had more lived experience of an oppressive marriage than Mill, though I want to add that was with her first husband and not with Mill later, who wrote this very interesting statement on marriage about how he was refusing all the rights that um, the law gave him over her. So they were really anxious that it wouldn't be like um, contemporary marriages. But they were both inspired in a variety of ways by a pair of slightly older philosophers of the previous generation called uh, William Thompson and Anna Wheeler, who also called marriage and women's position more broadly in British and Irish society at the time a form of slavery. That's fantastic. Just really, lots of people don't know necessarily these figures, although some might. So just to clarify, these are philosophers from the early to mid-19th century and as I understand it, these are all campaigning for, for women's rights. Yeah, exactly. Um, so William Thompson and Anna Wheeler wrote a very long titled essay that, <laughs> about how men are trying to keep women in civil, domestic and political servitude in response actually to an article that Mill's dad, James Mill, another famous philosopher, had written um, all kind of coming towards the Reform Act in 1832. So that article came out in 1825. Their response came out much the same year. And then Mill and Harriet Taylor are writing from sort of the 18, late 1820s, early 1830s onwards through to uh, her death in the late 1850s and his death in the early 1870s. And they are very active campaigners and reformers um, for women's rights, but much more broadly, they wanted to radically reconstitute society from its most basic institutions like the family, property, the foundations of political legitimacy upwards. So it can seem like they only campaigned for formal improvements, uh, like women being able to go to university or women being able to divorce or women being able to own property once they were married. But their work actually raises really foundational questions, such as why do people just assume that men are worth more than women? Or uh, for whose benefit is society supposed to be organised and run? And why isn't it done like that? 
So I think Harriet Taylor has a great bit on this in her essay, The Enfranchisement of Women, which came out in the 1850s, where she says, and when, however, we ask why the existence of one half the species should be merely ancillary to that of the other, why each woman should be a mere appendage to a man allowed to have no interests of her own, the only reason which can be given is that men like it. And it still seems really true. I think it's a very insightful thing that she said. So these radical philosophers knew, in the words of a later feminist slogan, that the personal is political, that is, the interpersonal relationships, and especially relationships within the family, shape the public sphere, what decisions get made there and who gets to make them. And Mill puts this really pithily in The Subjection of Women when he says, the family is a school of despotism, but he has high hopes that it could become a school of virtue. And somewhere else he calls it the citadel of the enemy that needs like taking and completely dismantling before kind of feminism or equality more broadly in society could be achieved. So they all believed in a much more equal, much more democratic world. And this is one reason they all thought women should have the vote, which is the kind of thing they're famous for campaigning for. But their analysis goes much deeper into what structures of society, from the family through to religion, through to the organisation of the economy and political institutions, create what we would now call the patriarchy and the negative consequences for women of male violence and privilege. That's fantastic. So it really isn't just marriage that they're critiquing. Yeah, no, not at all. But it is a, they recognise that it is a foundational issue in society. And so that also means it isn't just forced marriage then that they're thinking about. No, exactly. And I think that's one of the reasons that I found them so interesting for thinking about this modern issue about forced marriage and modern slavery. These thinkers all criticise marriage as an institution, like in general, whether women have consented to it or not. But that said, one of the most powerful elements of their critique is to interrogate how much any women consent to their marriage. So nowadays, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the UN Convention on Marriage, Minimum Age for Marriage and Registration of Marriages all enshrine the right to only marry with the free and full consent of both parties. And Mill and Taylor and Thompson and Wheeler all show how most women's consent isn't really free and also that it can't really be full because women are deliberately kept in ignorance of what marriage entails and what their prospective husbands are really like until they're married. And that last part is really interesting because we tend to focus in the law, for instance, which we've talked about already on this podcast, on whether marriages were forced through overt violent coercion. Although this has been challenged by contemporary scholars who, like these early philosophers, want us to recognise the constrained choices women face and the way that their very attitude to marriage is shaped by patriarchal norms. But we don't really focus on the full element of consent much um, when we think about forced marriage now I don't think which implies that consent is properly informed although obviously that is also connected to the freedom of consent they're not completely separable so in, a, in an early essay Taylor wrote in the present system girls enter into what is called a contract perfectly ignorant of the conditions of it and that they should be so is considered absolutely essential to their fitness for it so what she's saying there is that women aren't considered fit for marriage or like marriageable material unless they're not only virgins but don't even know anything about sex that might sully their perceived purity. But that means they're completely ignorant of one of the fundamental elements of marriage. And nowadays you might think of oh, marriage is about lots more things than that, but thinking about the time, um, this was particularly a society that saw marriage as a, in great part, the institution within which sex was sanctified and legitimised and the only place you could have sex, although obviously that wasn't the only place people did have sex, um, and B, didn't recognise marital rape as a crime 
um, and expected women to have sex with their husbands any and every time he wanted them to. So both Mill and Taylor point out that other contracts void if people don't understand the terms of them and that marriage in this respect, as in so many others, uh, is an anomaly. And this is compounded by the fact that divorce wasn't possible in their historical period, apart from through an act of parliament, which meant that basically nobody could get a divorce. So unlike other contracts, women can never get out of a marriage contract once they are no longer ignorant of the terms. You're right. We we don't think a lot about that question of full consent. What about that other part of the term? What about free consent? So in terms of the free part of full and free consent, Mill, Taylor, Thompson and Wheeler also make really interesting critiques not only the way society is constructed such that women have no other options but marriage, but also that, as Taylor puts it, women are educated for one single object to gain their living by marriage, and that women, as Mill puts it, are so brought up so as not to be able to subsist in the mere physical sense without a man to keep them. They are so brought up as not to be able to protect themselves against injury or insult without some man on whom they have a special claim to protect them. And worst of all, women are brought up self-defining as a being who only has worth if married. And Mill says, a single woman is felt both by herself and others as a kind of excrescence on the surface of society, having no use or function or office there, whereas a married woman is presumed to be a useful member of society. And those also seem quite true today, even though we've moved on in lots of different ways, about really thinking about why we might be concerned about the freeness of people's consent when there still is an expectation um, to get married. So some of the criticisms I think are useful for understanding the complexities of forced marriage and some of their wider philosophy about the importance of individual rights, choice and flourishing might also explain some of the harms involved in forced marriage, where one person's interests, inclination and what Mill and Taylor would call individuality are completely disregarded and sacrificed to the will and interests of other people. But their wider criticism of marriage as slavery also, I think, helps highlight that if we want to eradicate modern slavery, we need to look at more to do with marriage than just whether or not people consent to the initial ceremony. So these philosophers all have in mind people who do give consent, even where they also criticise the idea that consent could be free. Um, but they still find themselves in situations of extreme dependency, vulnerable to exploitation, abuse, violence and even death. That's totally fascinating. But can you just say a little bit more about what are the kinds of things that they're actually raising? Yeah, so Thompson and Wheeler say that the existing system of marriage reduces women to domestic slavery because women are not allowed a will of their own but have to obey their husbands and align themselves with his interests and desires. Um, they can't leave him legally without him having the power to force them to return to live with him, which is backed by the states. Like police would actually bring women home who'd absconded. Um, and in many cases, they can't even leave the house on a day-to-day -day basis without their husband say so, as women are expected to be at home and be fulfilled by all the activities they can do at home. Sometimes people critique these um, philosophers for just thinking about middle-class women. And this, especially this latter critique, does mainly apply to middle and upper-class women's position in marriage. But it does also apply to working-class women who didn't work outside the home, including those who did work for wages but by doing outwork which was brought into their own homes um, but there was also a push at the same time as these writers were um, criticizing marriage to achieve respectability uh, even for working class women that they should stay at home as well and that the family budget shouldn't need women to work outside the home or even work on things outside the household at all and um, it's kind of angel in the house syndrome is what's often referred to so 
They also think that more broadly, women's inability to be independent because of a lack of political, social and economic rights meant they were entirely dependent on men. And Thompson and Wheeler tap into a long-standing tradition in political theory, which sees dependence on what's called the arbitrary will of another as being the essence of slavery. Um, and just, I guess, to say, this tradition is usually called republicanism or neo-republicanism because it has its roots in Greek and Roman republican thought, and it's not to be confused with modern-day republicanism in America. So basically, is this a theory working towards a point of saying that anyone who's enslaved or dominated kind of has no will of their own? So I think it's trying not to say they have no will. It's trying to say they can't exercise that will because they're dominated. So obviously we know there are loads of examples of enslaved people definitely exercising their will um, all the way from quite small acts of rebellion through to actual violent rebellions um, and asserting their own freedom. But they all do that at massive risk. And that I think is the point of this theory that when you try and assert your will, if you're in this kind of um, arbitrary dominated relationship, then you risk basically death right that's the the the, the worst kind of um outcome so um what they're trying to say is that or the theory is trying to say is that if you are subject to the arbitrary will of another if you're dominated then you're totally vulnerable to somebody else's will um, and your ongoing survival depends literally on someone else willing that that be the case somebody um has who has the effective power to ensure it could not be the case so women in this example are dominated because their ongoing physical security depends on their husband, father or guardian continuing to offer them protection. So they can't earn a living on their own. They don't have kind of social security if they aren't seen to be protected by a man. So they're much more vulnerable to violence. And men only offer this protection on terms. So the big claim that these theorists keep emphasising is that men expect obedience. So women have to promise it in marriage vows, but it's also expected. And it's not a metaphor, as maybe we think it is now when you see your friends get married and they promise to obey, if they still do that. Um, it really was meant. So more than that, men also expect gratitude. Um, in fact, patriarchal society, patriarchal society makes them entirely incapable of really seeing their dependence as in any way equals or as like really as people with equal importance of any kind. And they therefore just assume that their own interests and needs come first and ought to be furthered by their dependence, even at the expense of those dependents' own well-being. So people in a position of dependence can only assert their will at the danger of insecurity, violence and even death. And those who dominate them have all the power. Um, and to use some kind of more political theory jargon, dependents don't have immunities from those powers, they don't have any protections from those powers, um, and they don't have any rights that they can assert which someone else powerful, like the state, will step in and protect and support if they try to assert them. And the arbitrariness of the will is this idea about pursuing somebody else's interests. So it's not a will that's connected to your own or your own interest and have to take those into account. It's just pursuing what it wants to do and you have to go along with it because um, you're in this situation of extreme vulnerability. So Thompson, Wheeler and Taylor and Mill all know that most men <laughs> don't exploit and dominate women to the extent that they actually kill them. Um, it's a bit like a kind of not all men hashtag comes up a lot in, in particularly in subjection of women where Mill is trying to persuade men to give women the vote and some more rights. In fact, they all emphasise that most men are, in general, pretty nice. And it's also a really interesting thing about modern, like, nice guy analysis. I'm the nice guy. But the problem, because the problem is women can't rely on this niceness. Um, and that, again, is a modern concern, isn't it? And generally, women spend their time ensuring that they're appeasing the men in their lives 
such that they will carry on being nice and that they won't exercise all the powers they have a legal right to exercise. And the theorists obviously also recognise that some women do have some rights, depending partly on their marital status and their class and economic status. Um, but they're pointing out that women really have very few, especially under the existing system of what's called coverture, where a woman's whole legal personality was taken over by her husband on marriage. Um, and Mill and Taylor write a really powerful series of essays in the 1840s and 50s on domestic violence. And in those, they point out that even where the law provides women with protection against assault and even death, those rights are insufficient to really protect women and other dependents like children and living servants. And many judges and juries don't recognise those rights and refuse to convict anyway, even for wife murder. Fantastic. Can I ask, though, just maybe connecting back to your previous podcast, how is all of this then connected to property and possession? So how does this connect to those really big legal questions about slavery? Yeah, great. So obviously, I'm suggesting that Mill, Taylor, Thompson and Wheeler are sort of in this broadly neo-Republican tradition, which is a philosophical understanding of slavery. And I guess there are contemporary debates about whether we should just think about slavery as an actual historical instance of chattel slavery or whether it's plausible to have these kind of more theoretical understandings of it, with which have their own long traditions. So it's not saying that... Yeah, it's just a different approach, I guess, to the legal one of thinking that slavery is treatment as property because it has this idea about dependence. But that said, these theories do also sometimes make the case that women are being treated like property, although they're not saying they're being actually physically, legally bought and sold in the same way as enslaved people are in systems of chattel slavery. But they point out things like money changes hands, parents make decisions about marriages um, for all sorts of strategic, economic, power-related um, reasons not to do with their children's interests. Um, and also, especially those series of, on domestic violence, like the way that men are allowed to treat women who people see as being theirs um, is similar to ways that they can mistreat property. So in that sense, they are interested in this exercise of control, which might in some cases be tantamount to possession. And I think that's another reason why they're really interesting for thinking through this knotty question of whether forced marriage or marriage in itself is a form of slavery, given the sort of sense of like it's not chattel slavery, it's something, it's something else. Can I, I find this really useful. And so obviously in, in our context, in this anti-slavery context, this is how we can start thinking really about the vulnerabilities of married people, mainly but but not necessarily only women, and ultimately get to that connection, right, between marriage and modern slavery. So can I get you just to sort of wrap us up a bit, just by throwing out really some of these big questions, some of the things really that you now understand this research and this philosophical approach, just to give us access to? What are the big questions now for you, Helen? Great. So yeah, so I think has been since I started thinking about this issue, is it just forced marriage? That's a form of modern slavery. Or is it that some marriages are forms of modern slavery? It could be because they weren't consented to, but it could be because exploitation happens after the marriage ceremony. And so, I mean, as we talked about, I think in a different podcast, the international courts have decided that at least in some cases, just saying that person is my wife was in itself an act of enslavement where that person had no ability to consent and their consent wasn't important. So I guess there's a question about to the extent to which that is also true in peacetime and then what else we might want to say about the exploitation um, in marriage. So I guess one big question is whether marriage increases or more depressingly just changes women's vulnerability to exploitation, domination and abuse or is it part of a like ongoing story of that from birth? Um, 
Can women safely leave marriages? What rights do they have when they are married? How independent can they be? These kind of questions about whether or to what extent people might still be said to be dominated by an arbitrary will inside marriage. What kind of powers do husbands and husbands' families get over their wives? To what extent do they like the powers they exercise over property? To what extent do they look like they're tantamount to possession or control? If And if the state doesn't protect women, if there are no kind of legal rights, um, to what extent does local public opinion temper the powers that men have such that they're not reliably used? Which I think is a really interesting insight that the theorists from the 19th century have, the disjunct between the law and what really happens. And then, of course, that adds the second question, so where states have really great constitutions, as we've been studying in a different part of this project, to what extent um, is that effective? So I think we were talking in a different podcast, like Moldova says that forced marriage is a form of modern slavery. It's signed up to all the relevant international conventions and yet kind of famously not a great country for women's rights, right? Such that it became, you know, becomes the centre of the book, The Power, about women taking over power. So that's a really interesting disjunct between whether the law is the thing that we need to protect women, what, how it works, like what else is needed. And that also leads to questions about are men ever prosecuted for violating women's rights or other people or other people involved in forced marriages, for instance, ever prosecuted? Again, an important question we've been thinking about in the project, given how few prosecutions there have been in the UK, despite we having making forced marriage illegal. And so these are all important questions to be answered in understanding the complex relationship between marriage and modern slavery. And I think should encourage us to shift our focus solely from looking at marriages, which were not initially consented to by both parties. That's definitely a fundamental violation of people's human rights. But marriage more generally might engender more different ways in which um, it's connected to modern slavery. Thank you. What a fascinating set of questions, really laying out a a pretty massive research and ultimately activism agenda for us. I find it really important because, as you know, there is this massive debate about forced marriage as a form of slavery or not. I've never heard anyone talking through in this way um, how philosophy can help us actually answer that question. Um, Gives me a sense, really, that we might use history as more of a usable past for today's anti-slavery movement for, for contemporary human rights. So let me just thank you, Helen, for stepping out of the hosting chair into the hot seat um, and sharing about this just absolutely vital and really pioneering project that you're leading at the moment. Thank you. Well, no, well, thanks to you for coming on the podcast as the guest interviewer. That was really helpful. So I could talk a little bit about, about this third strand of the work. It's been great talking about that as part of this project. It's a lot more that I didn't cover in these thinkers' analyses, um, plus a lot more people I didn't even get to mention who've engaged in interesting and insightful critique of marriage in similar kind of ways that are useful for this project. And so I very much hope they'll be the subject of some future episodes and perhaps you'll come back as a guest interviewer so we can talk about those later. Great. Thanks, Ellen. Helen is based with the Rights Lab a University of Nottingham beacon of research excellence. She is an assistant professor in the School of Politics and International Relations. Her forced marriage research is funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council and the Economic and Social Research Council. Please don't forget to subscribe to be notified on upcoming episodes. For more information, please visit our website, forcedmarriageresearch.ac.uk.